What if it was your job to support the largest intergovernmental organization in the world, and then to help countries meet or exceed the sustainable development goals for climate change, and then also just throw in raising funding to address a global pandemic? Today's guest is doing all of that and more, and has some thoughts for us on saying yes to big challenges. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 487. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the calls that we have as leaders is to say yes to big challenges. Sometimes those challenges are the ones that we anticipate. Oftentimes, they are the challenges that we can't necessarily anticipate, or even if we did, we don't necessarily expect they're going to show up in this particular day. Today, a guest who has had a career of handling and saying yes to big challenges, especially in the last few months, has done it with grace and success, and I know is going to help us to learn how to navigate handling big challenges more effectively. I'm so glad to welcome to the show today, Elizabeth Cousins. Elizabeth is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the United Nations Foundation, leading the foundation's next generation of work to support the United Nations. She has been at the forefront of global policymaking and innovation for over 20 years. She's a diplomat and thought leader who has worked on the front lines of peace processes, played an influential role in UN policy innovations from peace building to the sustainable development goals, and helped build public-private partnerships to solve global challenges at scale. Before joining the foundation, Elizabeth served for several years at the U.S. Mission to the UN in New York. She was principal policy advisor and counselor to the permanent representative of the United States to the United Nations, and later served as the U.S. ambassador to the UN Economic and Social Council and alternative representative to the UN General Assembly. She led U.S. negotiations on the Sustainable Development Goals, served on the boards of U.N. agencies, funds, and programs, and was the U.S. representative to the U.N. Peacebuilding Commission. Madam Ambassador, so glad to welcome you to Coaching for Leaders. Hey, Dave, Elizabeth, please, and it's great to be here. Well, the pleasure is mine. And as we dive in on this conversation and think about saying yes to big challenges, I was thinking about how we start. And I read about you that your day begins and centers with a bit of a morning tea ritual. Did I read that correctly? You did. Um, I'm not sure it's my biggest challenge. (laughs) Usually I get the tea in the teapot just right. Yeah, I started um, several years ago. I lived in Nepal and I was working for the UN in Nepal. And I discovered how inadequate my life had been when I was drinking tea out of tea bags. I was discovering just the pleasures of wonderful locally grown and harvested tea. And it became a part of my, you know, my morning wake up routine that um, I haven't given up since. You follow it with coffee and it really does wake you up in a very nice way. Yeah, I bet. It really fits in with the context of our conversation because when we're being asked to do big things, um, so much of it is just doing some self-care and taking care of ourselves as leaders as well, too. And you know, one of the things I'm really curious about hearing from you too is a little bit about the UN Foundation. I think probably most folks in our audience are familiar with the United Nations and the important work that the UN does. I don't think most people would be familiar with the UN Foundation. What is the foundation and how does its work support the UN? 
The UN Foundation is an independent organization. We were created 20 years ago by uh, Ted Turner, who is no stranger to taking on big challenges in his own life and work, uh, for the sole purpose of supporting the UN, creating space for innovative problem solving around some of the world's toughest challenges that the UN is also trying to work on, and bringing new partners and constituencies into the UN's work, whether that's the private sector, local governments, youth movements, or, or civil society. And we've worked across a wide spectrum of global issues in the time we've been around. We've probably done our longest standing work in a few critical areas, in particular global health, climate change and the environment and gender equality, but we work across a variety. And in the last several years, the sustainable development goals have really been our, our kind of North Star since 2015. And I just have to say, I can't actually think of anything more urgent than the SDGs right now in the face of COVID-19. Yeah, well... I think about what you've been through in the last few months and what the foundation, of course, all of us have been through, and what you just said of how many important critical goals for our planet are on the very top of your agenda. And then this year, February, it becomes apparent that there's this huge crisis that is going to affect all of us and is just so much taking over the work you've done. What was the middle of February, the end of February like as it became apparent that this was going to become what it has become? Yeah, you know, I think all of us were internalizing on an accelerated basis around that time exactly how significant and wide ranging and just profound the impact of this crisis was likely to be on all of our lives. Uh, and that's true across international institutions, it's true across national governments and others. Um, we began to think quite quickly about the needs of the World Health Organization and what they were going to need to do to be able to perform the unique and essential role that they play in the world, which is to act to coordinate the global response around health crises in general, and especially health crises of the magnitude you know, of this one. So we started working with them early on how to get the kind of influx of funding into their work so that they could really keep pace with the ballooning scale and costs of the pandemic response. They asked us sometime in mid-February, how would we think about this problem? And so we worked round the clock with them, with a partner in Switzerland, the Swiss Philanthropy Foundation. And in a few weeks, we created this COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund to surge in resources from non-traditional donors to WHO. So their normal donor base is governments. This was about everybody else. How could we allow anybody who wanted to contribute, whether they were individuals, companies, organizations, et cetera, to have a way to do so? Well, four months on, we've raised $224 million wow. from nearly 500,000 individuals, organizations, and companies from dozens of countries around the world. And we were just staggered by the response. I think when we started it, we thought we'd be in really good shape if we raised $50 million. We're now far in excess of that. The speed of the response was incredible, the generosity, the diversity of the response. We have individuals who've contributed $3 through online donate pages. We've had companies who've contributed $10 million. There's just an incredible you know, diversity of solidarity that's expressed in the form of, of those contributions for those who could. And we're well aware that not everybody can contribute to something like this financially. There are so many people facing such hardship, but for those who can, this provided a vehicle for them to do that. And I think especially early on as the magnitude of this crisis was hitting, it was actually helpful to people. We, on some of the online donate pages, there was 
comment after comment from people around the world saying, it just helps me to be able to do something because people are feeling so powerless in the face of something, you know, of this, of this magnitude. So we feel very humbled and, and just grateful to have been able to channel some of our own energies into making that possible and, and really proud of what some of those funds have gone to. So some of the earliest procurement of bulk supplies of personal protective equipment and lab tests that were sent to places that needed them around the world were done through our fund. And, you know, that's, that's less about the fund than it's about those 500,000 people, companies and organizations who contributed to it. So just been really gratifying. And if I'm hearing you right, it's not just the success of the fund, but it's also the fact that it's been done in such a different way than you would normally do fundraising for the organization of reaching out to individuals across the globe. As you look back, as you were putting this together, what did you and your team do that helped to open the door to do things differently than what you would have done in the past? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, part of it was just trying to work at speed and scale. So we did set aside a number of things we were already working on. We redeployed a number of people, quite a large number of people in our organization to work, especially at the beginning, full-time and overtime on this. We had a, a very early and close partnership with WHO around this work. So we were sort of working hand in glove with them, which was really critical. So we could also confidently say to people we were reaching out to, say companies in particular, this is where your dollars will go to. You know, this is the basis on which WHO will make decisions about where to allocate these funds. It's a pooled fund. So everything just goes into a common pool and it's allocated on the basis of a plan that WHO has produced. They've now had several generations of this plan and allocated to areas of most urgent need. Some of that's gone to WHO directly for the work they do, but a lot of it's also gone to partners. It's gone to UNICEF for work that they do in vulnerable communities or the World Food Program that started what they called global solidarity flights, some of these early logistics operations to get that equipment to places that were hardest hit and more remote. Some of it went to an organization called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, which is all about trying to accelerate scaled work on a vaccine. So I think people who came into the fund early saw how their resources were being used, and that also gave gave them real confidence. And we tried to be that bridge that could provide just rapid, transparent ease of ease of operation for both sides of the equation and, and real transparency around around how resources were being used. As you did that, especially in the initial weeks, what was the biggest challenge you had to overcome in order for that to happen well? It, well a little bit probably is, you know, sleeplessness. <laughs> There's a little bit of that. No, I think, I mean, to be honest, you know, people opened their doors to us and were incredibly forthcoming. You know, not everybody could give for any number of reasons. And for a lot of the companies, for example, they're they're giving in all kinds of ways. They have work that they're doing with their employees, work they're doing in their communities, work they're doing with their supply chains. For some of them, this piece was about what they could do on the global stage. So it kind of answered and, uh, you know, their need to have a more comprehensive way that they were addressing the crisis. I think, you know, the, the biggest challenge is everybody's so hungry for information and wanting to understand, you know, what's happening is just trying to make sure that we could keep up with that, could provide, you know, the best information we had, both about the nature of what was happening, you know, with the virus itself as it is spreading around the world, but especially about the response and just trying to keep pace with that because of course it's moving faster than we are and that's that's the challenge. Yeah, indeed. And you know, I know so much of this comes down to personal 
relationships and conversations as well too. And I suspect early on there was a lot of that work that you and your team were building. What was helpful for you in the message that you sent about this work that really did capture the attention of organizations, of individuals to get the word out? You know, a lot of it was around solidarity. And, you know, what's no secret that we're seeing expressions of both extraordinary solidarity and heroism around this crisis, as well as the opposite. And, you know, our countries, our communities, and our consciences kind of hang in the balance between those those two phenomena that we're seeing play out in the world around this crisis and many others. I think there, for those who see again, the scale of a crisis like this and how grievously it's playing out in particularly communities that are particularly vulnerable. They wanted to find a way to help and we just gave them a vehicle to do that. That's really all it is. It's quite a simple thing at the end of the day um, because I'm, I'm convinced that most people most of the time want to do the right thing. They want to help each other out. And when they see people in need, they want to find a way to contribute. And this just managed to match up all of those instincts with a very practical way for people people to make that choice. As I was researching the work you've done over the last few years, and especially the work you've done throughout your career on the sustainable development goals and the, just the climate crisis that we are all facing, I was really inspired and heartened by the work the foundation is doing, and also very conscious of the timeline we are all on to make significant progress on this in the next decade. And I was thinking about that in the context of COVID and what's happened. And, and on one hand, despite all the challenges, COVID has provided a chance for all of us to work together and respond collectively and come together, as you've just described. And yet, I'm also really conscious of the fact that it's probably resulted, too, in this unexpected challenge of now taking away some of the the focus of the work on climate action that's so central to your work and our work as human beings right now. How are you navigating that? Yeah, look, this is a challenge that all of us are facing in different ways, just in our lives, as well as in our work. And, you know, on the one hand, COVID-19 has just driven a truck through everything we were already doing or caring about. And the economic toll that this crisis is taking is so severe, and it may well deepen before we're through it all. But, you know, two observations here. I think first, Look at what every government in the world is having to think through right now. They're all looking at different ways to shore up their economies and their societies in some fashion, whether they're making the right choices or not. But that's top of mind on their agenda and how to recover their economies. And they're going to be spending trillions of dollars in the next several months to do it. So that means a whole lot of decisions about how to invest public dollars around long-term economic and social recovery, and not just recovery, but hopefully moving to a better state of affairs than many of us started with. That's a huge opportunity to make investments in the kind of sustainable and more equitable future that I think a lot of us have been working toward, and climate is central to that. So is equity, (laughs) so are human rights. And so all of those questions, I hope, will be at the top of the agenda when it comes to making decisions about how to invest those recovery dollars, the stimulus packages, how we think about the future jobs and good jobs that people need to have in this country and others. That should be an important and central part of of that conversation. The second is just that COVID-19 and responding to this pandemic is or should be showing all of us how interdependent we all are in a very profound way. 
You know, I, you hear people often say, and it's absolutely right, we cannot beat this virus anywhere if we don't beat it everywhere. So we have a truly global challenge right in our midst that we're all grappling with and we need to work together to solve. Well, there is probably no next best example of that than climate change, which is an even more complex crisis that deeply interconnects us in terms of how much our fates are intertwined, our economies are connected, and we really rise or fall together. So if the spirit of solidarity and the kind of forces of collective action are able to be strengthened in the midst of this crisis dealing with the pandemic, and we're certainly doing everything we can to work toward that end, then I think that gives us a stronger foundation for dealing with climate change and other other collective challenges as well. Taking this crisis and utilizing it for good by being able to influence the decisions that are going to come out of it, just what a wonderful way to look at it. And I'm really curious, Elizabeth, as you've processed this personally, I mean, as this started to happen, did you get there on day one or very quickly? It's like, okay, this is a challenge, yes, but it's an opportunity and there's so much opportunity we have to influence change. Or was there a bit of a journey for you and just being able to process and handle all the change before coming to that place and coming to that conclusion? I think both both things are true at the same time. You know, I, I think in the beginning, like a lot of people, it was was challenging to internalize exactly how serious this was, but pretty quickly that became clear. But also to say, we're not out of the woods on the global health side of dealing with this. I mean, oh, we're, yeah, yeah. we're the best at the end of the beginning of this crisis in purely health terms alone. We're not near the beginning of the end. So, so that crisis is deepening alongside the fact that we need to, to start thinking about how to put a floor under some of the deepest vulnerabilities in our economy and start thinking about where we will and how we will be able to come out of this. So we have to be able to, to do both type of thinking at, at the same time. And to me, this is all just about making really intentional choices. You know, when, when you have big choices and decisions to make, whether it's about a stimulus package or it's about how you're going to handle um, the, the, the public health guidelines that you give to your community, if you're, you know, if you're a public health official, you have to be thinking about all of that. And there is an opportunity in every decision to be as as mindful and forward-leaning as possible about some of the issues that are before us now and are going to be before us in the future. So I, I think it's, you know, we have to be able to deal with life in 360 degrees and make decisions that really reflect the world we're in and the world we want to create. One of the things I'm really conscious of in your work is that you work with a lot of folks who have very high visibility in the world. And I think the term you've used is with your board in particular is that it's a board of impatient optimists. Ted Turner's on the board, Nobel Prize winners, the Queen of Jordan, former prime ministers. I mean, there's folks who are really have a high profile. They're very influential in the world. And I'm thinking about the folks as part of our listening community who are not necessarily every day working with folks at that profile, but are oftentimes needing to interact with leaders, both inside and outside the organization that are very high profile. And I'm curious how you've handled that. That that must be an interesting experience, like the first time Ted Turner calls you on the phone to have a conversation. How do you balance the vision and optimism with also the practical goals of the organization when you're working with folks like that? 
Sure. Well, first, I'm incredibly lucky to have the board I do because they, that is exactly the right way to describe them impatient optimists. They're also all activists. If you think about every single one of their careers, whether it's been, been at the highest levels of government or in the corporate world or the NGO world, all of them have really lived their values and tried to make change in the world in a way that improves lives for, for people in their communities or you know, in, in their environment. So I feel incredibly lucky to have them as kind of guides and mentors and, and, and by my side. You know, I would answer, I answer this the same way I think they would and do and have in their lives, which is that, you know, optimism is all about action. It's actually all about practicality. It's about not just what you dream, but it's what you do. And how are you going to take the first step and the step after that, that gets you to a place that you aspire to. So that's the kind of spirit that we try to bring to our, our work at UNF. We try to think, you know, we, we want to ta- tackle challenges in a way that's worthy of those challenges. And we're a relatively modest sized organization. So we're not, you know, we're mindful of our own limits for sure. But we also want to really look with clear eyes at, you know, the gravity of some of the challenges before us and what it's going to take to solve them. You talked about the SDGs earlier. You're right. We have 10 years on the clock. We started this year before COVID really hit, thinking this was going to be what people were calling a super year. 2020 was going to be the year to count down the decade of action to reach the SDGs. And to be able to get to even a preponderance of those will take such heroic action. And that was before COVID hit. So that doesn't say to me, well, let's give up on that ambition just because it's harder. It just says we have to get smarter about how we go about it. And that to me is how you thread that needle between optimism and and getting things done yeah indeed it's all about impatience at the end of the day yeah yeah well a a good dose of healthy impatience is so needed right now for so many leaders you know you've worked in government for 20 years and and in some capacity and at the highest levels what early on when you first began having conversations with very visible people and leaders with big personalities what did you find that was helpful to you to be able to set aside some of the, I'm sure, nervousness and excitement that you felt of interacting with with folks with big personalities? And what was useful to you? Interesting question. I think you know, I I am really lucky in that those you know incredibly eminent people that I've been lucky enough to intersect with, whether they're on the foundations board or in other contexts have all actually been really wonderfully accessible people. So big personalities and big achievements, but all very accessible and inviting of interaction with with people like me. So so I feel like um, I've been very lucky in that respect. And uh, that's more about them than, than anything else. I was struck by your call for leaders to have kindness and thinking about that in your work. And I was thinking about that in the context of so much that you have in your plate right now. How do you see kindness supporting leaders and organizations in achieving big things? Well, I think where kindness needs to play itself out on a lot of levels right now. So part of that's just the day-to-day interaction that I hope I try to strive. I don't always succeed, but certainly try to strive to bring just day-to-day work with colleagues or in my family. Um, But part of it's also looking at the world and being confronted very visibly in a way that for any number of reasons we haven't or haven't chosen to be with the reality of how other people live. 
whether they are, you know, black Americans suffering from systemic racism that we have looked at but not well enough or acted well enough on for, for far too long, whether it is people in other countries who are suffering some of the, the worst deprivations, you know, the, the record numbers of people who are being displaced from their homes because of conflict or violence or other reasons. So being able to bring some sensibility to our work where we really try to think about the circumstances of others, that to me is at the end of the day, what all of us should strive to do because we're, you know, we're, we're all living on this very crowded planet together. We have so much more in common than we do that divides us and our, you know, our best possibilities are really harnessed when we are able to work together, when we see each other, when we listen to each other. So just trying to bring even a semblance of that to, you know, our, our day jobs and our lives, I think is a really, is a really important ambition to strive for, even though we, and not certainly I don't always, always meet it. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting you mentioned, you know, our, our lives and so much of that has been thrown up in the air over the last few months. And in addition to all the things and the big challenges you and your organization are saying yes to, you're also a parent and navigating life. How have you balanced all of that, particularly in the last few months, just as all this is happening in the world, of, of still being present with family and finding some semblance of integration? Look, I, I'm also, I'm first of all, incredibly mindful that in even thinking about the question of balancing work and family, I'm lucky to have a job. A lot of people don't. So that's a, a balancing act that is a great gift to have to wrestle with. I think, you know, those of us who do wrestle with it always feel like we're probably shortchanging one piece of our life <laughs> or both at the same time. But uh, one thing that I've, uh, I have to say, appreciated in trying to find things to appreciate in this, you know, very challenging moment that we're in, one of them is that I actually see a lot more of my son. <laughs> I see him every day. I get to do his, his schoolwork with him in the middle of the day. I, I feel so, so grateful for that because he's still at an age where he enjoys the company of his parents <laughs> because he's not, not quite a teenager yet. So I'm very grateful for it. And, you know, just, just I hope that he is, uh, is forgiving of me when I lapse, but it's a balancing act that I feel lucky to be able to have to strike. I hear so much of a theme of your your work and just who you are as a person of uh, optimism, as, as you mentioned with your board of, you know, of course, there's challenges going on in the world, but looking at the glass half full and looking for the opportunities and the blessings within those challenges. And uh, the other thing that I'm really conscious of is that leaders are always learning and growing and even changing their mind. I'm curious, as you have taken on this role at the foundation, um, in the last year or two. What have you changed your mind on? That's such a great question. So to bring my son back into it, I think he'd probably be most excited that I changed my mind about video games somewhere around month two of, of the lockdown. But, <laughs> so, you know, I don't know if this counts as a as a change of mind, but I think there's a, I, I've had a change of intensity in, in thinking about some of the work that we do. So, you know, I've been working on the SDGs before they were the SDGs. I have been working on climate change with colleagues for a number of years, and we all talk about the science and the timetable science tells us we need to be on to bend the curve on climate. We obviously know about the timetables for the SDGs, but I don't think I had fully internalized until maybe a year or so ago, 
just what that really means in our day-to-day lives. And I'm seeing that in colleagues um, in other institutions as well, kind of a series of pennies dropping about what kinds of changes we will need to make as individuals, as consumers, in our organizations, if we really take seriously what we intellectually believe. And I, so I've, I've internalized the tempo of urgency, I think, in a very new way over the course of the last year for a number of, of different reasons. Uh, I, uh, a once-in-a-century pandemic doesn't change that sense of urgency. It only accentuates it. And I think it's beholden on all of us and, you know, especially those who are in this community who already work on sustainability issues or who work on equity issues. It's another one. We, we don't really have the luxury and we shouldn't give ourselves the luxury of saying it's somebody else's generation to deal with. This is really ours. And there is a window we have, which is so consequential and, you know, without making it seem grandiose, it really does every single choice we make really does count right now. And, you know, we should kind of thrill to that because we have, we do have the power to make the changes that we want to make uh, in this world, however complex and overwhelming they may seem at times. So that's felt like one of the bigger shifts uh, in in my life in the last year. Elizabeth Cousins is the president and chief executive officer of the United Nations Foundation. Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Dave. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. If this conversation was useful to you, several related episodes, a number in the last year with other government leaders. One of them is episode 440, Leadership in the Midst of Chaos with Jim Mattis. Uh, Jim Mattis, former Secretary of Defense, also former four-star general in the United States Marine Corps. When he was on episode 440, he talked about his journey as a military leader, some of the key events that he has uh, experienced along the way uh, that you'd recognize from World News, and then, of course, uh, his focus on coaching as a military leader, episode 440, lots of details on that. Also, another perspective from the highest levels of government, episode 456, how to be diplomatic with Susan Rice. Uh, Susan Rice is the former UN ambassador, also former National Security Advisor under President Barack Obama. In episode 456, she walked us through her career, her focus on diplomacy, and some of the key lessons that she's learned along the way in leading at the highest levels. And then finally, I'd also recommend episode 481, How Great Teams Find Purpose with David Berkus. Uh, We talked about that in a recent episode of the importance of teams picking a fight, and you heard echoes of that in this conversation. You also heard echoes of that in several of the other conversations on government leadership. And so all of those you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you have not yet set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, that is a great place to start because it'll give you access to the entire library of episodes searchable by topic. In addition, access to my free weekly leadership guide that comes out every Wednesday You'll receive the notes for every episode, all of the relevant links, and of course, uh, all of the resources that I found over the last week that I think will be useful to you in your leadership journey. All of those accessible by going over to coachingforleaders.com, setting up your free membership. Once you do, you'll have full access to all of that, plus all the Uh, book notes, all of the leadership guides, all the member cast, plus my own library, a ton more inside the free membership. 
on next Monday, I'm glad to welcome Keith Ferrazzi to the show. He is the author of the best-selling book, Never Eat Alone, a book I read 20 years ago and has been super helpful to me in uh, my thinking about relationships and networking. He's out with a new book called Leading Without Authority, and we're going to be diving into that next week on the show. Have a wonderful week and see you next week with Keith Ferrazzi. Take care, everyone.